0: the first time that I've had the opportunity to actually preach in front of live people over the last couple of months, Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, It is somewhat difficult to preach in front of an empty room, and I I thought that it would be fitting as we gather back together to take some moments before we jump back into our series on David uh, about the coronavirus. And and the reason that that I'm saying that we need to think about this just for a moment is because I have... Notice that there are a lot of conversations that are going on about this topic, and I think it would be a great opportunity just to think about the way that we ought to be thinking about this pandemic. I think it was Spurgeon who once said that if there's a fire outside, the pastor should at least notice it, and that's kind of what we want to do with this message. Now, with our sophisticated medications and technology, who could have imagined months ago that the NBA— Major League Baseball and Disney would be shut down. Anybody have that kind of like thought or prophecy in mind? Not me. Uh, I love basketball and I was expecting to watch the playoffs right about now. But to date, we have 5.29 million confirmed cases and almost 300 or over 300,000 confirmed deaths as a result of the coronavirus. Now look, I honestly didn't know what an epidemiologist was six months ago. Anybody else willing to acknowledge that? Okay, it's just me. I got, you know, not a great education, but I I didn't know what an epidemiologist was. And yet today what I found is many of my days are spent reading through the findings of these uh, virus detectives. And and so as I've been reading through, what I found is it seems like the problem is difficult even for them. Uh, Do you remember when we were told that you need to wear gloves? Uh, And then we were told that, oh, if you wear gloves, that might be worse for you than wearing gloves? And then we were told that we need to wear masks, which I think it's good to wear masks. But then we were told that if we wear masks, it's really good for others, not for you. And so we are actually loving one another by wearing the mask. And then we found uh, an article just the other day. I was reading it by a neuroscientist who said, actually, I think the ma- mask might be more dangerous for you than not a mask. But we're going to wear masks because we love each other, right? That's why we're wearing masks today. But as we re- look through the, the information, uh, you know, we start to ask ourselves, who can we trust? And then, of course, uh, weeks ago, our president told us you can't even trust who, you know, the World Health Organization. And so the information that is out there is confusing and perplexing. And that's even for uh, weekend warrior virologists like ourselves, right? So as we're thinking through this, uh, I think it's important for us to recognize that these are difficult issues to consider. And I'm sensing the pandemic pandemonium has infected local churches as well, making it difficult to know how to think biblically about these strange days. And so pastors and Christians are trying to make really difficult decisions to honor Christ. And thinking is hard. Uh, thinking is hard really for a couple of reasons. If you've read your Bible, you know there are a couple of reasons that it's hard for us to think, right? Uh, Some of you are like, is one of those that you're male? And no, that's not one of the biblical answers. Um, But the first is this, the coronavirus has invaded our homes, and it has actually compelled each of us to stare the brokenness of this world in the face, You know, you you might be able to ignore if other people are getting the flu and you're not getting the flu, but if the whole world is getting sick, it is hard not to stare the brokenness of this world in the face and acknowledge that this world does not work the way that it is supposed to. But there's a second, and that's this, that sin has left humanity broken as a result of the fall. So the brokenness that confronts us, it is not just out there and in the world all around us, it's actually, we are told scripturally, in here. We are told that when Adam fell and he committed the first sin, that everyone that came after him was fallen in their mind, in their wills, and in their emotions. So when you think about this, uh, theologians of the past have talked about the noetic effects of sin. And and what they meant by that, it's not that it comes from Noah, uh, but it's from the Greek word nous for mind. And they said there are mental effects Of sin. We don't think the way that we would have in the Garden of Eden. And so our thinking is hard and the problems are hard. And and I don't know about you, but man, it gets hard when there are complex situations and I feel like I don't quite have the kind of IQ power that I want to deal with it, right? And that is the world that we live in, and it's only exacerbated by the fact that we have this huge pandemic that is affecting us. And this morning, We know that when Jesus commands us to love God with all our heart, soul, minds, that we ought to be filled, I think, in this moment with a sense of our neediness for and dependence on Christ's spirit to help us navigate the coronavirus to the glory of Christ. So those decisions are only going to get more complex as we begin to reopen the world before the sickness has declined or a vaccine has been created. And so this morning, what I really want us to do is take five verses that have really shaped and guided the elders as we have been going through making decisions about to have live life in light of this sickness. Uh, Now, you might have your own verses. uh, And I encourage you, if you're in a community group, uh, take those verses to your community group, talk about them, pray about them tonight. But these are five verses that we think you should at least have sort of in your tool chest as you're trying to make wise decisions. And and the way we're going to do this is I'm really going to begin with a question for each of these, and then we're going to answer it with these verses. So here's the first question. Where is God in this pandemic? Where is God in this pandemic? Now, maybe you're wondering where God is in all of this. And I've had the opportunity to listen to a number of pastors who have spoken on this topic And there is this one answer that that shows up from time to time where a pastor says, you know, God is just as surprised by this pandemic as we are. Uh, God is obviously not directly responsible for this pandemic. God is not really doing anything himself through this pandemic. And uh, there's some variation of that that is out there. But come in close. That's not the God of the scriptures. That's not the God that the Bible tells us about and glories in on every page. See, this might be your first ep- epidemic, but it's not God's. And it's times like these that we need to be reminded of the providence of God. See, most look to Genesis fifty twenty when they're trying to describe the providence of God. Maybe you know that verse. You'll remember there that Joseph was uh, basically sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And he went through many years in prison. Uh, he experienced a lot of uh, false accusations, slanders, charges, and it was a difficult life. But in the end, he became the second in command in Egypt, one of the most powerful nations of that day. And, and later, on the backside, he was actually used to save the nation of Israel, And his brothers, uh, they were saved as a family because of Joseph and what the Lord worked through him, even as a result of their sin. But they're thinking in their last days, this guy is going to kill us because that's probably what we would do if somebody had done this to us. And yet we find Joseph responding in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and he says, I'm going to forgive you because as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He saw their activities through the the lens of God's activities. And he says, what you meant for evil, God intended it for great good. And catch this, as we read through the pages of the Bible, what you are going to find is a God who has his hands on everything. Now, I would love to take you through 50 texts this morning and show you about the way they speak about God's sovereignty, but let me just give you a picture, and you can go find these later. As you read through the pages of Scripture, you will find That God doesn't stand behind evil and good in the same way, but God's purposes are always accomplished. Even through the motives of human agents who are evil, like Joseph's brothers or Judas. Even through fanatical pharaohs like Ramses and emperors. Through wicked nations like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. The scriptures also show God's sovereignty over inanimate things and Creatures like the wind, lightning, snow, frogs, gnats. I wish you would just take the gnats out of my backyard. Flies, locust, quail, grass, plants, blindness, deafness, paralysis. Every disease in Matthew 4.23. Your travel plans in James. Spiritual deadness. And even each of our days, we are told are numbered by God and appointed in such a way that we cannot add one day to them. That's the God of the Bible, a God who is intimately engaged in your life. That is the God that we glory in. It is not a God who is absent in the pandemic. It is a God who is very much present, just as present when times are good and when times are bad. And yet, when I leave this morning, I'm going to go and I'm going to put my face mask back on and I'm going to wash my hands and I'm going to fasten my seatbelt. Why? Because I believe God's sovereignty does not mean that I'm not responsible. I believe it means I am all the more responsible before a God who is sovereign over me. And so, here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you have put your faith in Christ, you have trusted Him as your King, what that means for you is that God's providence translates into him being a present father to his people. That's the beauty of the providence of God. If you are in Christ, he is caring for you. He is in charge. He is in control. And he is for you as a good father is for his kids. Now, he's just as present in times of sickness as in times of health. And when the pandemic pandemonium breaks out, what I want to encourage you to do, us to do this morning, is never to lose sight of the providence of God. See, that's why Jesus says, as he considers God's providential care for those scavenger birds of Matthew 6. He says this in Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than those scavenger birds? See, Jesus here, he's at, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, from scavenger birds. Those annoying birds that would eat their fruit and make them at times hungry, ruin their crops. Those annoying pests, those pest birds. He says, those birds you can't stand, people can't stand, God cares about them. And if you think that God cares about them, consider how much more He considers you and loves you as His child. Do do you see it? I mean, He just shoots off into heaven with this grand view of God's care for us. He says, if you are in the kingdom of God, if you are a child of God, His care for you is not that of some distant being who is unconcerned with you. It is that of a Father who loves and adores you as His own. That's the God that we serve so don't miss this we are called to trust that Jesus himself says god's providence isn't ivory tower theology it is hope for famines wars and pandemics and when pandemic pandemonium breaks out don't lose sight of god's providence i love what question 27 of the heidelberg catechism says uh, it, it describes the providence of god and they explain it this way I said, so the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he being God, still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yeah all things come not by chance, but catch this, by his fatherly hand and I think there should be an emphasis an underline and a bunch of exclamation marks after fatherly hand don't miss this if you are in Christ you have repented of your sins and you have trusted King Jesus as the Lord of your life and there is no event that happens to you that doesn't go through your father's hands isn't that comfort this morning no you got bandanas but you can you can nod to the glory of that nothing that comes to you if you are a child of god that does not trickle down through the father's hands specifically and purposely for your good that's the purpose of god's work in our lives even through bad things everything is reclaimed for god's glory and the good of his people through his hands all things work together for the good of his people romans 8:28 all things that's at least bad things And good things, all things for our good. And don't forget Romans 8, 39 to 40, where we are promised that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that comes through the hands of God to his children will be too much to separate them from his love. What promises come through the providence of God? See, God doesn't promise that we will not face persecution or plague or even death, but that we will not be separated ever from our heavenly Father, and the eternal life that is, lives with him. See, God's not absent in the plague. He's present. He's always for his people. He never lets us go. Now, we might not be able to go through and understand all of the reasons for what he does, all of the reasons that an infinite mind might have to care for finite creatures, but what we can know, is the word tells us clearly, that it is what? For our good. And that's the trust and confidence that we have even when we don't understand. I love the providence of God and the way that it inspired the Swiss reformer. Uh, his name is huldrych Zwingli, and he was living and experiencing a plague himself, and it was interrupting a great work of God that he was doing in the land, and he wrote this song called The Plague Song in light of the Black Death in 1519. And in it, there's a line that... That really relates how all of us ought to be viewing this plague. And he says this. I love this. This is something that I hope that our hearts could sing as well. He said, your vessel am I, singing to God. Your your vessel am I. I'm your vessel. You know, you're the potter. I'm the clay. I'm your vessel. And then he goes on to say, to make or break altogether. You trust that when you are in the hands of God, whether he makes you or breaks you, it is all for your good and his glory, that his purposes are always fulfilled. Let me ask you, are you living as though God is for you and with you in this pandemic? And do you trust his hand to, to make or break you knowing that nothing comes to the Christian that doesn't come through the hands of the heavenly father? See, Zwingli saw his his finitude before an infinite God and he trusted him as a benevolent father despite his circumstances. We need to never forget the providence of God. But here's another question. Second, can government tell us not to meet? Or to meet? Can government do that? Now just last week, uh, you probably noticed that the news was like super abuzz with the fact that the president, President Trump, had deemed churches as essential and encouraged all governors to do that. Some governors hadn't, many had. Uh, but in the wake of that, you notice that a lot of people got really excited. A lot of Christians got really excited. And if you're a Christian, hopefully, you already thought being a member of a local church was essential before President Trump told you that. I'm just hoping you, you felt that weight before your, your president told you that. Now, we also encourage churches to start gathering. Some were happy that Trump said for us to meet. And some of the people that were happy that Trump told us to meet were the same ones who were unhappy that some state governments have prevented churches from meeting. Now, now what I mean is, is that, <clears throat> you know, there's a sense in which some were happy to have the endorsement of government. And that is a blessing that we have freedom to, to meet. But, but they were also happy or unhappy because the government said that we couldn't. But I think the point is, is that God calls us to look to Christ for whether or not we should meet. Sometimes it will be more or less costly. So how should we think about the church and the state? We'll catch this. Uh, Romans 13.1 tells us, you can turn there in your copy of God's Word, and keep your Bibles out because I'm, I'm going through a lot of text. <clears throat> but Romans 13.1, <clears throat> and really 1-7, to 7, but just looking at verse 1 for now, tells us that God's providence actually leads us to what should be a reflexive submission to government. Romans 13 says we should have a kind of reflexive submission to government. Here's what it says in Romans 13.1. He says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Listen close. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. But here again, I think this is a picture of the providential care of God, even coming through sinful, fallen rulers. And all of us, as humans, are sinful and fallen apart from Christ. We need his help. But Paul tells Roman Christians to submit. Now, you might be thinking like, man, yeah, but Paul doesn't know the government that we have. You know he doesn't know our president. He doesn't know our senators. This, this particular Republican, this mayor, this this or that. You've got somebody in your mind, and you're thinking he doesn't know the kind of government that we're under. And yet, they were under in Rome a pagan government that, from time to time, sporadically killed and persecuted Christians. And God says that even they are His human agents. Don't miss this. It's not distinctively Christian to rebel against the government. That is is not distinctively Christian that we are rebelling against human governments. not according to Romans 13. See, here's three things I think that we need to keep in mind. First, Christians are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. So so we we recognize that. Jesus is king. We are part of his kingdom first and foremost. His law is a law of laws for us. And here his authority says that we should give ourselves towards submitting to government authorities. But second, following Jesus means reflexively obeying the government over us. Now, I say reflexively very intentionally. Because there may be times where the government tells us to commit sin, in which case we must peacefully refuse. Third, sometimes government officials will do injustice against citizens that we will not see justice for in this life. That's the truth of the scriptures. We are not promised that we will be allowed freely to meet. Chinese Christians are not promised they will be able to freely meet. In fact, they can't. That is not something that God or Jesus has promised them. Sometimes we will experience injustice in many forms in this life that we will not see the justice for until after that life. And and you might say, well, what do you do? If God is sovereign and for us in doing good, uh, how do we live when we are seeing and experiencing even this kind of injustice? That's where Romans 12, 9 comes in, which precedes Romans 13. Romans twelve 9, you'll remember there that we find that God is our great avenger. He is the one who writes wrongs. He promises us that every injustice will be dealt with. So obedience has cost Christians their lives in the past, but our blood does not have the last word. It's the blood of Jesus that has the last word. So Trinity Bible Church, we took a break for about two months from meeting together. And we did this on the recommendation of Governor Doug Ducey and a number of other medical experts, the CDC, etc. But just to be clear, we did not stop meeting because the government ordered us to. That's not why we stopped meeting. Now, I'll tell you what I wrote to another sister in Christ who was asking that really good question. Should we be meeting together Are we not meeting because the government has told us not to? Have they overstepped their bounds? And one of my responses to her was the same thing that I'll tell you this morning. And the same thing that all of our elders affirmed. And that is this reality. That if our president had told us to quit meeting while allowing schools, restaurants, and movie theaters to stay open, your elders would have happily gone to jail as vessels for God to make or break altogether. We would have happily done that. That's what it means to be... A pastor, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to see Christ is king. He is our Lord. See, God has never promised freedom of religion this side of Jesus coming back. But we trusted the motives of our government to protect our citizens in this moment. And we trusted God's care in this. See, this isn't the first time the church has taken a break from gathering. Uh, That's another thing I learned as I've been reading about this, and we've been going through uh, plague. I didn't actually have a a class in seminary on how to deal with a plague. I didn't get like a plague playbook or anything. So I've had to do a lot of research sort of on the fly, and one of the things that I discovered was that in 1918, there was a Spanish flu that hit our country, and there were many churches that had to shut down. In fact, in that pandemic, they said that over 50 million people died. You can imagine, we we have 300,000 at this point, 50 million People would get sick in the morning and by night they would be dead. That was a significant moment in our history. So please hear me. It is a good thing to value separation of church and state. And there has for sure been some overreaching in some places, but I'm grateful that we haven't experienced that. On the other hand, we ought to pray for our officials because they are seeking to make wise decisions concerning this sickness, caring for the vulnerable. The, the economy, keeping that in view, and, and understanding there's a, a tense political environment in this decision. And there's all these concerns about food and making sure people have enough food. And there, there are all these complex issues, even outside of biblical wisdom, that they are trying to consider so that they can keep us safe and care for us. That should humble us and make us want to pray for them all the more. This should make us quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to anger with the complexity of the numerous tensions that all have to be held together in making these calls. So we should be humbled. We should be humbled as we, we see these various uh, difficult tensions that we are holding together. And as we struggle with human hearts that can lean towards self-promotion and self-protection rather than the flourishing of the community. You know, I hope that one thing that happens as we are going through this sermon even this morning is that you actually have a sense of greater humility and being overwhelmed by all that is going on. Because I think if we are sufficiently overwhelmed, then we will become more sufficiently dependent on God who alone has the answers. See, we should pray for them. We should submit to them. And here's a legitimate concern, though. As we think about God's providence and God's government and how we make decisions, how do we submit to authorities in Romans 13.1 when they ask us to not meet? When Hebrews 10.24-25 says not to neglect meeting. How do, we, how do we balance those? Do you see it? Like, it's wise not to meet for a season. And yet, Romans 10, I mean, uh, Hebrews 10 says, you need not to neglect the meeting together. Now, well, the question is, is it disobedient for the church not to meet? So, brothers and sisters, please be reminded in this season that you are not only physically vulnerable, that's true, but you also are spiritually vulnerable when you don't meet together with other Christians. And so the pastor of Hebrews tells his church in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, this pastor tells his church to set their minds on stirring up fellow Christians in the local church and to love and do it to love and good deeds. He's saying, be thoughtful. Be creative in the way that you love others. Meditate on how you can encourage those around you. Put your mind to it. You know, Christianity is a thoughtful religion where we don't just put our hands and our strength to it, but we put our minds to it. And here we find, in Hebrews 10, this word that is so important. It says that we are not to neglect meeting together. Not neglecting to meet is really in the original language a stronger statement than the English communicates. And I think it's important to know what it says to understand how to obey it. It speaks of a wrongful abandonment. And it's the same word that is used to describe elsewhere Israel who forsook God along with his covenant, his laws, and his commands. And this pastor in Hebrew says the new covenant community of the local church should not do that. They should not forsake God like Israel did because we have so much more in Christ we should be even less willing to walk away so Hebrew says meet more not less with embodied people as things get worse and worse now catch this technology has been a blessing over the last few months Uh, it has been a constant frustration in my life but I've learned new things I set up my own Zoom call the other day. We've continued to have all kinds of services um, and and ministries online. We've had services every week like we are today. We've had weekly prayer meetings. We've launched community groups through Zoom and much more. And while I'm so grateful for all of these technologies, I I constantly am reminded that we need to be reminded that they are not meant to slake our thirst for God's people assembling in person in the local church. We should not get too used to these kinds of things. So your elders have gone this route with technology, not to change what church means, but because your elders are desperate to care for your souls in the best way we can during this unique time. But there's a question that I think we should be asking. Have we neglected meeting together? For self-preservation have we violated Hebrews 10's command not to neglect not to neglect meeting together or to ask it another way have pastors been cowed into submission by political or social pressure and again I would say the short answer is no let me explain first your elders have not led our church to abandon God and his people as some have that's not what's happened I don't think anybody would say that you know the elders like woke up let's just say Trinity Bible Church for now And they said, you know, people are getting sick, and so we need to abandon Jesus now. That's not what was happening in us taking a break from meeting together. And second, your your elders believe in separation of church and state. So we don't believe that the state has authority over us. Uh, I I love this statement that uh, was made by the Donatist in the fourth century. Uh, There was a a time when the emperor was trying to say that he had authority over the church. And they asked a a very insightful question And they asked this, what does the emperor have to do with the church? In other words, the the emperor of this world is not our king. Jesus is king. So who thinks that they can have authority over the people of King Jesus? Well, that's exactly the way that we view the church. Now, some government officials, they have violated religious freedoms in, in different parts. But at large, officials have made tough decisions at great financial and political cost to themselves. If you're thinking there's like some kind of grand conspiracy, it must be grander than our leaders because I've not known many political leaders that are willing to sacrifice money or political like sort of respect or uh, favor for hard decisions. It's usually the otherwise, the other way, right? And yet they have done that. And so we believe that they have tried to help us think wisely as a community about how to stay alive. Third, we can learn from church history. Uh, I, I hope all of you realize that there have been some really good thinkers in the church over the last 2,000 years that we can learn from. And we have Christians that have been doing this obeying Jesus thing, following Jesus thing for a couple of thousand years and we could learn something from them. And as we look at it, there have been many plagues that have come and uh, there have been different responses to those plagues that we can learn from. There isn't always been the same response. So uh, in the third century, Cyprian was writing about a plague that came and he was commending Christians because they were running and jumping into caring for Christians and even non-Christians at peril over their own lives. Some of these Christians even died because of caring for those who were sick. And he was commending them for a, a godlike concern, a, a laying down their lives as Jesus lays down his life for us. In the fourth century... Uh, There's another voice that gives us a window into this. Uh, Julian, who was an emperor of Rome. And he was looking at the the, the plague that was hitting at that time. And he was actually chastising a pagan priest. And he was talking about the Christians. And and as he's watching the Christians and he's trying to like get people more excited about this this pagan uh, religion. He says to this priest, it is a scandal that Christians care not only for their own poor, but ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. There were families that were casting out their own relatives to save themselves and not the Christians. Rodney Stark actually argues that the plagues led to the promotion of the gospel because of the unique answers they had for life's big questions. The gospel had answers that people were confronted with in the plague. And they also loved others at great loss to themselves. But there's another episode. In 1918, the Spanish flu hit that I've mentioned before. There was a Presbyterian pastor, Francis Grimke, and he wrote this. I do know that large numbers of people have regretted the closing of the churches. So these these pastors had to, to close the churches for a season. And I hope that now they are opened again that they will all show our appreciation of their value by attending regularly upon their services. In other words, we had to close them for a season and I hope that when they are opened that Christians will see the value that they should have for gathering together to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. So some jumped into the sickness, got sick and lost their lives. Others said, we think it's wise to separate for a season. Now, all of these are Christian brothers and sisters, but know this. Your elders choosing not to meet, it did not violate the, Hebrew, the, the heart of Hebrews 10. And it wasn't merely driven by Romans 13. Now, another text came to play, Matthew 22. Fourth. Fourth question. How do we love one another when we can't see each other? How do we love one another when we can't see each other? When asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus answers in Matthew 22, 37 to 39. And you'll remember, he says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think John is actually clarifying this in his epistle in 1 John, where he is actually writing to this church, and he says, this is what the law looks like in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, In 1 John 3.23, this is what the law looks like for Christians, and this is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. That's what Christians are called to do, to be a people of love. So our local church has a special New Covenant obligation to love the members of our church, a unique love that is not like the other loves that we have. Of course, we know that Jesus also tells us that we're even to love our enemies and Matthew 5:44. Anybody struggle to love your enemies? And that's hard, right? And yet we're told to love like church members, we're, we're told to love our families, we're told to love God, and we're even told to love our enemies by Jesus himself. Don't miss this. God calls us to love neighbors, church members and even enemies, but not in the same way. There are different kinds of love. So for instance, uh, I, I don't love Malachi in the same way that I love Gia. That would be weird on a number of ways, right? And I don't love my kids in the same way that I love Gia. And I don't love my church in the same way that I love them. And yet I love them all and they're different kinds of loves. And God has created this world with beautiful complexity and different kinds of love and relationships that we are committed to. And it's always been loving to not come to church if you were throwing up, right? Some of you are like, I didn't know that. I'm sorry, guys. But it has always been loving not to come to church throwing up. Now, just to be clear, our decision to meet or not to meet is not directly dependent on whether or not our state or federal government views church as essential. The the church looks to Christ for that decision. Our decision was motivated by a love of God and others as we considered the counsel of medical experts. Like, how can we love each other well knowing what we know is going on in this world? And that's been tough with so many competing voices. Do we wear gloves? Do we not wear gloves? Some say you do, some say you don't. Do you wear masks? Not masks. Some say do, some say don't. But loving others. See, this is a difficult thing that we need to think critically about. Protecting others. That's what love looks like. See, we are, this morning, thinking about the reality that the love of God and neighbor has motivated our decisions And here's one thing I hope this season has taught us. Love is not easy. Real biblical love is not easy. It's sacrificial. I don't like sacrificing things and giving up things. That's sort of a sin defect I have. I like to get things. I don't like to give things. I'm better at receiving things than I am giving things, right? Except for when I get upset because I didn't get the thing I wanted. That's another story. But we want to be sacrificial in our love. And it requires thought and intentionality to love sacrificially. It can't be a lazy kind of love. That can make your head hurt, and it should humble many of us how hard it is to love in a thoughtful way. See, it requires the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that is only given to those who are united with Jesus Christ to have this kind of love. And catch this. When we took a break, it wasn't about self-preservation. It was about Christ-like, sacrificial love for others. Love for others causes us to want to protect the vulnerable, both physically and spiritually. So here's one question I want to put in your mind as you're thinking through this. And i put a number. But I want you to ask yourselves, are we accounting for the physical dangers of meeting As much as we are accounting for the spiritual dangers of not meeting. I think those are two. I'm not saying that there are the pro-spiritual, pro-physical people. We'll talk about that in a second. But I'm just saying, are we recognizing, is it clear to us that according to the Bible, the Bible says we need to meet together? And do we weigh, at least in that decision-making process, the fact that we are vulnerable spiritually when we're not gathering together? Now, there's some who are at home who are saying, like, we're not coming Not because we don't feel the the need to meet together. And you have a lot of reasons that that you're at home right now. And we celebrate that. We we don't celebrate it. We actually want you here. We're not glad you're not here. But we're grateful that we have folks at home who are going to be with us soon. But as we make these decisions, there can be all kinds of divisions which which leads to our last question. Are you pro-faith or pro-wisdom? Are you pro-faith or pro-wisdom? I need to tease that out a little bit, so don't leave just yet and get offended. I know some spiritual leaders who have faced this pandemic have actually met all the way throughout. They haven't stopped meeting. And I know that there are even some pastors that have met throughout and have died as a result of it. I know other spiritual leaders who tweeted even last night that nobody should meet. And there are differences of opinions all over the place. I, I was talking to a group of pastors, uh, about 13 pastors just last week about uh, coming together and reopening and what the plans were. And there were a bunch of different plans. But one of the pastors started using this language of the pro-faith group and the pro-wisdom group. You know, the pro-faith group was the ones who say, I trust God, so I'm going to church. And the pro-wisdom group was, we're staying home because we're gonna be wise. And I just stopped and I said, I don't like the categories. I don't think that's fair. I think there are people who are pro-faith who would love to be there, who think it's wise not to be, but have faith, maybe more faith than some of us. But there's other reasoning that's going on. And there's some who are staying home, who have, who have tons of faith. And there are those who are coming who are, are wise. I, I wouldn't want to say that like, hey, we're the pro-faith group, not a lot of wisdom going on today, right? No, there. There are all kinds of ways, I think, that that language and language like this can begin to cause disunity through this pandemic, as though it's like an us versus them or this group and that group, and we are all the children of God. And that's why we need to be reminded in this time of Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, where Paul writes this, "'I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called.'" with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, catch this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So when the world's getting crazy, will we we as the church be known for fear or anger? Will you be known for humility and gentleness or anger and hostility? Am I patient with others and particularly with those In my own church? Do I give the benefit of the doubt to those who disagree with me over these complex issues? And how are we practically demonstrating an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? That's not just a theological throwaway line. Are we loving one another eagerly maintaining this bond of unity? Are you faithfully watching services and taking part in our Zoom community calls? Are you calling older saints who can't meet and others that you haven't seen? Are you praying for the members of the church? I said this last week. I pray that during the season, as as a pandemic pandemonium arises, that our eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace would go still higher. As chaos grows, I hope that our eagerness for unity grows, that we become more patient as more patience is needed. Here's what I mean. Some of our members will be here worshiping and some will stay at home for safety for a while. And both can be faithful. Both can be wise responses. Some other churches have met throughout and some will not meet till August. And We should be known for giving the benefit of the doubt to others, not assuming their motives are bad or ill formed or that their thinking is bad. And the outcome of decisions, it doesn't always tell the whole story of God's glory being won. One. In closing, Henry Martin was a missionary to India and Persia, and he died of the plague at age 31 on October 16, 1812. But in January before that October, he wrote this in his journal. He said, if he has work for me to do, speaking of God, I cannot die. Uh, that line is often shortened into, I'm immortal until Christ's work for me to do is done. Brothers and sisters, let's trust God's providence. Let's seek the face of Christ. Let's pray for our government. Let's make wise decisions, love sacrificially, be eager to maintain unity, wash our hands, cover our faces, and trust with, trust with Martin that I am immortal until Christ's work for me to do is done. Let's pray.